0: We'll turn to John chapter 6 if you're not there already. John 6, we're going to start reading in verse 35, which is where we were looking last week, but we're in the middle of, a, of an extended discourse by Jesus in John 6, and so we're going to read from verse 35 down to verse 51 this morning. John 6, verse 35. We'll be turning to several passages in John today and explain that as we go along. But So, so make sure your Bible's open if you... Have a smartphone, you can look there, that's fine. Or some, some way to see the Scriptures. I would love for you to be looking with us as we, as we walk through the um, passage this morning. John 6. I know we do have a lot of guests as you're turning there, and we're grateful for that. And I know uh, moms have kids that have come in, and grandkids, and that's exciting. And so we're thankful to have, um, have you with us today. John 6, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And then you. let's look verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Well, just by way of introduction, I was thinking Friday night, we we had the opportunity to go to our third daughter, Katie, uh, our second daughter, third child, Katie. She had her, a talent show at her school, kind of an end-of-the-year talent show, and it was a Western-themed uh, talent show, something they have been working through this uh, semester in school, and and so there were all kinds of kids playing songs, doing dances, different instruments and different things during this talent show. And, but, but they were all Western themed. And so there were a lot of Texas references and songs, which I very much appreciated. And one young boy played deep in the heart of Texas on the piano. And this little, little bitty guy, and he did a great job, and he wanted the audience to participate. So he would get to the part where you clap, clap, clap. And he would kind of tap his leg and try to get the audience to clap with him. But apparently there were not too many Texans in the audience because it didn't go very well. Uh, I I think about 99% of the people in the auditorium didn't quite figure out when to come in and how to clap that out. They were always about a half beat off every time. And so, uh, so I was... There were about Jeremy. You were there. You know the song. I know you're from Oklahoma, which you guys kind of know about Texas. So, uh, and 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 so, so they would they would they would come in. You know, this guys at night are not big and bright, deep in, and they would always come in half and beat. So there were about three of us in the room. I could tell we were trying to get everybody on beat, and it never worked out. They were always late, and and it just got worse as the song went on. They never quite got it. Um, so. Here, what we see in in John six here, I was, I was just thinking about that. Is is the, the, these people that are grumbling with Jesus? They they just never quite get it, and the farther along, it seems like they get it less and less. Um, I, and that phrase is kind of in my head. I I'd come across an article this week, and I don't, I don't even remember where I read it, but with the film industry growing here in Fayetteville, I start to notice the the. Media kind of has picked up on that, so there's all these movie and film related articles and stuff in the local news. And there was a, there was an article on the most overused lines in film, and so just kind of lines that have become just kind of cliches, and 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 they just get overused. Well, the the author of this article contended that the that this is the this is film's most overused line. It's this: you just don't get it, do you? And he had this whole list of films. I was amazed, and of all the films that have have used that line, and 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 seeing the list, I couldn't argue with him. I mean, it does seem like it's uh, it's it's overused. Well, as we're working again through our way through John, it's amazing it's amazing that we don't find Jesus using that line in an episode like this, So really many times throughout. This gospel account. You remember we talked a little bit about this last week. Nicodemus and and trying to figure out what this whole new birth thing is, and going back into the mother's womb, and he, he just doesn't get it. And and the woman at the well just doesn't get this living water. And 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 the man who's healed at the pool of Bethesda doesn't doesn't get it. And and the and the the, the crowd who eats the fish and the bread and and they think that it's just about physical nourishment. They they don't get it. And here, again, these opponents of Jesus, that same expression could, and we might say should be used for these who are coming to challenge Jesus. They're, they're trying to challenge Jesus' legitimacy here, and, and in doing so, it jo- just shows how little they really understand. Um, and, it, it, and it's easy for us to kind of poke fun at them from our vantage point and where we sit in the progress of Revelation and and as as followers of Christ, but we wouldn't have gotten it either uh, we we wouldn't get it if we were in their shoes but when when someone says one of the things that that article mentioned that I read when someone says "You just don't get it, do you it's usually at the beginning of an argument or at the end of a relationship, so you can just think of any movies where that would apply but it's it's about to get heated, and this is part of the argument or it's I'm done with you. You just don't get it, do you? And the relationship's over. And, and so you take that, that, that's kind of how it fits in film. And that's probably why Jesus doesn't say it. Because he doesn't want either of those things he he's he's intentionally as he works, as we see this unfold in the gospel of john he's wanting to turn the dialogue to about faith and to talk about what it means to believe in him for eternal life and he and he wants people to come into a relationship with him so that they can know that eternal life and so he's he's long suffering with the crowds and with the people as he as he again continues to be misunderstood misrepresented and, and 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 yet he he's long suffering with them. And so this is what we'll see in our text this morning. Now I'm mindful, this is not your typical Mother's Day sermon text. And so grumbling Jews trying to start an argument with Jesus. I mean there's obvious connections to Mother's Day right there. I, I know you see them. And eating the bread of Jesus' flesh and 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 what we'll see is it's a really a very controversial passage even in Evangelical circles trying to understand what, particularly verse forty-four, means, and this is the stuff that seminary, the students in seminary, just love to fight about over lunch, you know, lunchtime, and what this means. And so, what we're going to do though is that we, we, I'm mindful of the occasion, and so we're going to walk through this passage, see the beauty of God's grace that we've been singing about, His sovereign grace. And then we'll explore some implications for moms and for the rest of us. And so that's our plan for this morning. And then we'll come and we'll gather at the table and worship together. Well, as I said, the the passage has really stoked a lot of controversy uh, among believers. That Jesus is hes answering these kind of angry objections uh, of, of unbelievers who deny his deity. And in doing so, he's kind of starting an argument for us. This is something, uh, that's not his intention, but that's, that's kind of what's happened in, throughout church history. And so what's so controversial about what we just read in John 6? Our focus will be in verses 41 to 51. Look down to verse 44. Let's just kind of helicopter in to the part that often is controversial. John 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me, draws him. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. What, it, what does that mean? You can, you can see a couple of different ways that that can be understood. Either Jesus can be saying that, that, that no one can come without God's drawing. So what God does is He draws everyone and, and, but only some come. Some choose to come. And so God, God's drawing doesn't cause anybody to come. But it just makes coming possible. So that's one way to understand verse 44. Or the other way is to see that no one can come to Jesus without God's drawing. And everyone whom God does draw, does come. That God's drawing affects our coming to Jesus. And that means then that the Father only draws some since all don't come. And that means that the decisive factor in coming to Jesus is God and not us. So you can see the lines. And if you've been in the church for any length of time, you understand kind of the the lines that are drawn here. And, and, And many of you wrestle with this and maybe fall on different sides of this. And so I'm aware that you get the passages like this. And some of you, the heartburn is already growing here happy mother's day and so you pull out the tums and just go ahead and and others of you you might love passages like this because you love to argue about passages like this i hope that's not the case but but this is a great opportunity to fight with people verbally i hope um others of you just frankly get confused and and you really don't know what to do and you don't quite understand the issue and that's okay and we, we, we can be informed. And still others, you, you, you see this, and, and yes, you, re, you realize the tensions that that's there, but yet you delight in the free and the sovereign grace of God that saves. And I, I hope that as we work through this morning, that more and more of us will pitch our tent in that last camp. That, that yes, we recognize that we don't understand how it all works, but we, we take great joy and, and, and we're very thankful for God's sovereign grace that we, we can know. And so that's, that's what we'll be looking at this morning. So to, just to get it setting this issue in the context of John 6, that's very important. And so we, we learn from verse 59, John 6 verse 59, that Jesus is teaching, he's saying these things in the synagogue at Capernaum. Remember, he, he came across the Sea of Galilee, walked on water, put the disciples in the boat, walked on water in the storm, and got the disciples safely to the other side, the crowd that he fed the, the bread and the fish to miraculously, they can't find him, so they go looking for him. They end up meeting him in Capernaum. They want more food, and that's what, Jesus, that's what starts Jesus giving this discourse about him being the bread of life. And, and so he's speaking in the synagogue at Capernaum, and, and, the, and the opposition to Jesus and to what he's teaching is, is growing here. And we're going to see it continue to grow throughout the Gospel of John. But verse 41, the, the, the context of this statement in verse 44 is the grumbling of, these, of, of Jesus' Jewish listeners here. And, and they're, they're grumbling about what he said. He's being challenged by the same people who just ate food that he miraculously provided to them. I mean, you would think if you had witnessed that, if you'd experienced that and had tasted the fish and tasted the bread and seen how Jesus just miraculously fed these fifteen to twenty thousand people, you would be grateful for him and open to anything that he had to say. That's not the case. And we wouldn't have been either. And so Jesus just said he's the He's the bread of God sent from heaven and into this world to give eternal life to anyone who would believe in him. And those who come to him and trust in him, he will raise up on the last day. (coughs) Excuse me. But instead of bringing kind of clarity and agreement and 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 this coming together between Jesus and this crowd, instead it it just it just they just get more agitated. So verse forty one. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, "I am the bread that came down from heaven." And they said, "Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, who's?" Father and mother, we know. How does He now say, I have come down from heaven? And so what Jesus claims about Himself, it doesn't fit with what they think they know about Jesus. What they've observed. What they know to be true. And they're looking through their eyes and and hearing with their ears. This just doesn't fit what you're saying. It's just Jesus. From dinky little Nazareth. We, We know Joseph. We know Mary. I mean... There's, he didn't come from heaven. He came from Nazareth. This is, so how can you say you're the bread that's come from heaven when you're just Jesus of Nazareth? So they had no category for this. So you, then you skip down, skip down with me verse 47. We'll come pick up and fill in between. Because in verse 47, Jesus really just, he rubs salt into the open wounds that are already there and just really gets it in there. And so he affirms what made them grumble in the first place. And then he adds even more to it. So to get them more worked up. Verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven. So that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats the bread, he will live forever. So he's claiming to be this better bread than Moses provided. He, he's he not just providing this bread, he is this bread. But, but that's really nothing new. He's already made that claim. They didn't like it, but he's made it already. But then he adds to this, into verse 51, he says, And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. We're going to tackle this next week, uh, but you can you can see Jesus talking about his flesh, and when he when he says he will give his flesh, he's speaking of sacrificial death, and and they're gonna they make this connection, and and so when Jesus says that they are not grumbling anymore. Now the text says they start disputing, so this is elevated. It just the the decibel of their disagreement, it just goes up here in verse 51. And so the Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? It's a cannibalism. So we'll see Jesus' response next week, but but back to verse 43 and 44. You see Jesus' response there to the grumbling of these of these Jews. Verse 43, Jesus answered them, "Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So, this controversial verse is a response to their grumbling. I mean, that's what I want you to see in its context, to their resistance to what Jesus is telling them about himself. It just doesn't drop out of nowhere. It's in this context of their grumbling to Jesus. The more resistant they become to Christ, the more explicit Jesus is about how impossible it is for people to come to him on their own. And so Jesus plunges here without apology, without any warm up into this mystery of how God is sovereign over everything, including our coming to Jesus. And yet we'll see human choices remain meaningful. It doesn't negate that we're not robots. This isn't fatalism, um, and so Jesus doesn't try to explain how it all works and, and, and how this mystery is, is worked out in the, in the mind of God. And trust me, I'm not going to be able to explain it either. So just go ahead and quit waiting for that moment when, when all the lights are going to come on. Jesus is simply proclaiming both truths. And that's what I want us to see this morning and I want to do this morning. So what does Jesus mean? By no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. He's saying God's drawing is decisive in our coming to Jesus. You can't get around this. Without God's drawing, none of us would come to God, to Christ. That, that said, the Father's drawing is is not in conflict with our coming with our choosing to come with us freely coming to jesus and wanting to come to jesus that's they're not at odds with one another and again we'll see this as we go through but i want to uh, this is where i need you to stay with me here we're going to look at a few other passages in john that that i think help us understand what's being said here in verse 44 and these basically say the same thing in different different words look at john chapter 6 earlier in this In this chapter, John 6, verse 37, we read this just a moment ago. We looked at this last week. John 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And so in the flow of John 6 there, I I see no reason why, why the Father's giving people to Jesus, and the Father's drawing people to Jesus. I don't think those are different experiences. I think that these are parallel expressions here in John 6. And Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Not some that the Father gives me will actually come to me, but all that the Father gives will come. And again, there's, there's, there's good reason to think that in verse 44... Likewise, the, the all, all that the Father draws come to Jesus. The drawing is the deciding factor. Look over down in John chapter 6 further, verse 63. Here Jesus is going to refer explicitly back to verse 44, which is the verse we're considering this morning. And he's going to apply the truth of verse 44 to, to those who don't come, especially and specifically to Judas. Verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. He says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. And then John inserts this little comment here. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe. And who it was who would betray Him. That's a reference to Judas there, that last phrase. And Jesus said, this is why I told you that no one can come to Me unless it is granted him by the father a reference back to verse 44. And so you you notice this logical connection here that Jesus is making between what Jesus says in verse 64. There are some of you who do not believe like Judas. And then verse 65. This is why I said to you what I said back in verse 44, that no one can come to me unless the father grants him to come. So it's the father's drawing it's the father's granting verse 65 if, if this were something that god did for all people then all people would come and, and and but this 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 doesn't make sense a universal drawing of all people doesn't make it doesn't make sense of judas this is what jesus is saying jesus says that god didn't grant judas to come he left him in his rebellion and his unbelief and his greed look down john eight 47. two more passages John eight verse forty seven. John eight forty seven. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Now, in this verse, in the context of John eight, hearing the words of God isn't just like you know just some oral uh, activity where we just just hear. Uh, sounds, intonations, the the words that's not it. it. hearing is hearing with understanding, with agreement. It's 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 a parallel expression to 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 belief, to faith, to coming to Jesus is to hear the words of God. And so the reason Jesus says they, they don't hear is that they're not from they're not of God. So being of God seems to refer to this choice of God to to draw them. So again, the deciding, deciding cause behind hearing and understanding and believing and coming to Jesus is, 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 is a prior position of being called of God. Right, last, last passage, John 10. Just turn over again. John 10, verse 26. John 10, verse 26 to 28. Hear me out here. It says, But you do not believe, because you are not among my sheep. My sheep, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My sheep hear my voice. They know me and they will follow me and no one can snatch them out of my hand. So the decisive factor in whether we known by Jesus, whether we believe in Jesus, whether we hear His voice, whether we follow Him, is are we part of His flock? Are we of God as he says in John 8:47 because we're part of his flock we hear Jesus voice and we believe and again when we come to Jesus we come voluntarily we come freely we want to come to him we love him but behind that behind that change in us of of how we view Jesus and how we posture ourselves to Jesus behind that change from Opposing Him to coming to Him. Behind that is the work of the Father to draw us to Him. That's what we see Jesus showing here. So let's go back to John 6.44 real quick. So we, we, we say then in John 6.44 that if we come to Jesus, it's because the Father draws us. That is something that not one of us deserves. You understand that? None of us deserve to be drawn to the Father. Father is looking for better uh, yautic. That guy's, he's good. It's like we pick people on teams on the basketball court. That's not it. None of us deserves to be drawn by the Father. If we don't come to Jesus, then it's because we're left in our rebellion and that is something that every single one of us deserves. We all deserve to be left there. We're all responsible to come to Jesus. Again, this is not fatalism. He's calling He's calling you, if you haven't come to Him, He's calling you right now to come to Jesus, to believe in Him. And all those who come to Him, He receives and He gives eternal life. So, the invitation is wide open in, 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 in Jesus' mouth and throughout the Gospel of John, throughout Scripture, come, believe, receive eternal life. It's a wide open invitation. You see, we've, let me just give you some several references, and you're not going to have time to turn to all these. Just listen Certainly know John three fifteen and sixteen whoever believes in him and Jesus may have eternal life, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life John three eighteen whoever believes in him is not condemned verse thirty six whoever believes in the Son has eternal life john five verse twenty four whoever hears my word and believes him. Who has sent me has eternal life. John 6.35 We looked at this just a moment ago. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 37 Whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Verse 47 Again, passage this morning. Whoever believes has eternal life. John 6.58 Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Verse 38 of chapter 7, whoever believes in Me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John 12, verse 46, whoever believes in Me will not remain in darkness. Do you see this this overwhelming tsunami of invitation in jesus here whoever 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 believes anyone who wants to believe in christ anyone who will come to jesus you can come and trust him and be given eternal life he will not cast anybody out and he will keep you forever that is a wide open invitation all who come to Jesus are received by Him and are given eternal life. All who believe in Him will be saved. And our job is not to figure out whether, we, whether or not we've been drawn by God. That's not it at all. Our job is simply to come to Christ, believe in Him, and have eternal life. And I urge you, if you've not done that, do, do it today. Let this be a day of salvation for you. And if we come, though, And those of us who have come to Christ and have believed and have received eternal life, what do we do? Then we can can turn around and look back and we can look to God and say, thank you, thank you for drawing me. It's your grace and your grace alone. There's nothing in me. It's all work of you. Salvation is of the Lord. So, but again, so we hold these twin truths together. We, We see it, look back with me again, verse 35. 30 through 37, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe all that the father gives me will come to me. There it is. Sovereign grace. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. We have this responsibility to come side by side, elbow to elbow here in these verses are these twin truths of just divine sovereignty and human responsibility to believe. And, and, and they're connected. Those who come to Jesus are welcome, not rejected. Those who come are drawn. They, 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 but they do come. Every, every conversion, every one of us who has been born again, it's, it's because of this supernatural enabling by God. Again, the sovereign work of God rubs elbows in verse 44 with, with, with human choice. And, and uh, again, verse 44. No one comes to the Father unless the Father... No one comes to me. So we do come. No one comes, though, unless the Father who sent me draws him. And So the Father prepares, but the prepared one must still come. I mean, are, are, are you conscious before coming to Christ of the Father's drawing work? I doubt it. I was not. I, I, didn't, I didn't see the, the, the Father working in that way. Most of, most of you would also probably say no to that question. It, it, it's not usually until after the fact that we see what God was doing. He was drawing me to Himself. He was opening my eyes. But here what Jesus is saying is the percentage of those people who become Christians because of the Father's drawing work is 100%. I know I'm not getting a lot of amens, <laughs> but you should be thankful. No one comes who isn't drawn. How do you know you're drawn? Because you come. And Jesus, what Jesus isn't putting up barriers. He's not making it harder. So the barriers were put up when we sin. Barriers were put up at the fall. Nothing but barrier. No, every one of us deserves. No, none of us deserve to come to Christ. None of us deserve to be drawn. We all deserve punishment, eternal punishment, wrath. He's not. He's not even talking about why some don't come. He's talking about why some do. That's his focus. Some come. Some do come because of the Father's preparatory work, without which none of us would come. And that makes every conversion a divine miracle. God gets the credit as he should. And our part, again, is to come. Everything, everything else in the process is provided for supernaturally. It doesn't make our coming robotic. All right. So that's, that's the controversy. <laughs> Now, what are the implications of that for us today? I'm thinking particularly of mothers. So I'm going to give you five statements here, and this is, this is moms. I encourage you to jot these down, and I'll repeat them. I don't have them on the screen. I probably should have, so you could write them down. But living bread for weary mothers, that's what we see. This, is, this should be bread for famished souls, what we're looking at today. It should not cause heartburn. It should cause satisfaction, delight. First thing I would say is this, is that weary moms can find help in the humility that sovereign grace produces. Weary moms can find help in the humility that sovereign grace produces. Remembering, remembering that we came because of Him, it humbles us. And that is a good thing. If, if it weren't for His drawing again, we would be utterly lost. So that, that truth should humble us. And it's a good thing to be humble when you're humble you're putting yourself right in the stream of god's grace where he blesses us james four six says that God opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble We need grace brothers and sisters moms you need grace you need sufficient grace for for all of the stuff that you go through day to day if you want to be in the stream of of, of the experience and the flow of of god's sustaining grace you You've got to be humble, and this truth humbles us. And it's, so, I, so I say, it's helpful to be humble, and this truth is a humbling truth. How is humility helpful for us? I'm just thinking of moms in particular. But humility, it opens us up to be helped by other people. It, it makes us teachable. It, 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 we drop our guard. We don't have to pretend. We, we can say, I, "I don't have what it takes. I I need help." And so humility does that, and that's great. It's a it opens the way for deep and meaningful and authentic relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ. That's that's one thing. Being humble it helps us by it keeps us it, by keeping us dependent upon God in prayer. I, I can do nothing apart from you, God. I I, I need you. It keeps us. Dependent upon His Word. God, you've got to speak to me. I, I, I don't have it in myself. I need, I need your voice in the situation. So I, I need you to speak. I need to hear from you, God. He keeps us clinging to His Word. Humility allows us to be honest about our struggles and about our own sin. Again, we don't have to, we don't have to be pretenders. Humility guards us from other sins that, that love to cling to arrogance. There are other sins that, again, attach, attach themselves to pride. Judgmentalism. Anger, envy, jealousy, fear of man, hypocrisy, and on and on and on and on. So if, if, if we are humbled by the, the truth of God's sovereign grace, we're helped in that fight against other sin in our life. We can get a foothold. So that's the first thing. is Weary moms are helped by the humility that sovereign grace produces. Second truth is this. Weary moms can overflow with thankfulness for the grace they've received. Overflow with grace for the with thankfulness, for the grace they've received, everything that you and I have, including our coming to Christ, is a gift from God. that should cause tremendous thankfulness in our hearts are you Are you thankful? Are you full of gratitude to God? The Bible says to give thanks in all circumstances, all circumstances that doesn 't mean that we 're thankful for all of our circumstances, like I am really thankful that I just Fell and broke my knee this today. That I'm so thankful for that. Uh, but in in that experience, in that circumstance, I am commanded to be thankful to God because there is grace even in that. And so so we still have reason to thank God. We, I, we were reading we reading through the book side by side in our small group and discussing it every week, and and we're just about finished. But in Ed Welch's book on page one fifty one. He says this, as a hedge against hopelessness and despair. Now, I know there are no moms who ever feel hopelessness, who ever feel despair in the tremendous responsibility and the heavy load that you carry. I know that's a foreign experience to some of you, to, to all of you. But there, I've heard of other moms that feel those things at times. But he says, as a hedge against that, hopelessness and despair, and as a way to affirm our dependence upon the Lord, lead in saying thank you to the Lord. Let let this be a habit of your life to give thanks to God. It's a guard against that sense of despair. When we, when we can't think of anything else to give thanks for, we can always go to the truth of God's saving grace that we've known. That, 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 that this will stir our minds to remember the other grace gifts that God has given us that that begin in the headwaters of His sovereign grace that we know in salvation. So third, weary moms can have peace. They can have the peace of knowing that their assurance is not rooted in their performance. They can have the peace of knowing that their assurance is not rooted in their performance. If the Father draws us to Himself freely and sovereignly and omnipotently, then He will keep us to the end. This is the ground of our assurance. Those whom He called, He justified. Those whom He justified, He also glorified. I mean this is the this is stated explicitly in this passage, this eternal security of the believer. We have assurance. So we can we can hop off of the performance treadmill that so many of us want to live on. And I know moms, this is a real temptation. You look around and you compare yourself to others and in the church maybe or other moms at school and you see, man, they just seem to have it together and I'm sure I'm, my kids are a mess and they can't sit still at dinner and everybody else has it together and so we compare ourselves to others. It's not even that anymore. You have the whole world to compare yourself to. So you get these sanitized cleaned up versions of moms on the internet, and they have their little blog, and they have their Facebook page, and they have their television show, and everything's just cute and wonderful, and even the spills are just kind of adorable, and, and they, they never get upset. It's just a it's just, just sweet, sweet moment, and a great memory, and everything's great, and, and so we, have, we compare ourselves to others, and we feel that this need to perform, and to, get, and to, to always have our act together is dangerous. Because it's not just in how we view others, but we have this view of God that He looks at us and He's, he's either frowning at us because we're having a bad day and we didn't get up at, at 5 o'clock and we didn't have our quiet time before the kids awoke and we didn't have breakfast on the table and the husband left for work and we didn't, we didn't do this and we didn't do this, so God just, must just be scowling at me today. And then other days, you know, I get up and I'm, everything's going, I'm firing all of God's sudden, so happy with me today. That is a distorted, twisted view of God it's one so many of us have. I struggle with this. This good day, bad day. Get on God's good side. Get on His bad side. That is not how God views us. He holds nothing but love in His heart for you. Not a mixture of anger. There's no scowl in God if you're in Christ. And so this truth of sovereign grace, it, it, it just frees us to know the peace that comes with, the, with our, this, having this assurance settled. He will not let anything take me out of his hand because he's claimed to me as his own. Fourth, weary moms can, can hope. Listen to this. Weary moms can hope for the conversion of their children whom they love because of this truth. Even if your child seems to you to be utterly beyond hope, this ought to give comfort to our souls. I know some of you think it should do the exact opposite, but it's it's not true. If conversion is ultimately dependent upon something in us, and human goodness or in some human inclination or family history or in parental responsibilities and and nurture and teaching, then then if that's true, then we should despair over the the souls of our unsaved children. We would, but nothing is too hard for God. That's what this truth teaches us. Nothing is too difficult for God. When God calls the dead, they rise. But when God draws the sheep, they come. So don't stop praying for your, your unsaved sons and daughters. Or children, for your mothers, fathers. Pray for them. And Jesus say, don't lose heart. God is able. Nobody can resist the grace of God. Last, weary moms can find purpose in their lives by directing all glory to God and not to them. Weary moms can find purpose in their lives by directing all glory to God, not to them. You can, you can live for the reason that you were created, and that is a very freeing thing. This is why God saves us the way He does, so that all glory goes to Him. And so moms, you, you will find no greater joy and satisfaction in your role as a mother than in living for the ultimate purpose for which, you, for which God made you, and that's His glory. Not to become the mom of the year or... To become better than all the other moms in, in, the, um, in, 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 this, in the school or in the church. It's to live to direct all attention and glory and focus to God. That's a freeing thing. And again, this truth just helps us. Sets us free to do that. Again. Jesus does not say these things to stir up controversy. That's not the point. And I hope that's not what you take away this morning. Well, I expect emails, so I'll just be ready for that. But Jesus says these things to call us to himself, to humble us when we're proud, to glorify the Father. This is why he lived. This is why he died. This is why he rose again. And he he urges us to come to him, come to Jesus, be satisfied in Jesus, be humbled by Jesus. Give glory to God by coming to Him. And we're going we're gonna to come in just a moment. We're going to come to the table. And this is a great place for us on this Mother's Day. This is, again, we're talking the, the, the goodness of grace that comes for, for weary mothers and for all of us who are weary. We come and we find nourishment at the table. And I don't mean because of the calorie count and this little cracker and the juice. But I mean we're, we're going to come and we're going to remember Christ together and, and feast the lord and that is good for our souls let's pray together lord as we come in just a moment to to the table may the remembrance of christ be uh, precious to us god and satisfying to us and humbling for us and and comforting to our troubled hearts filling us with peace and the peace of assurance and all all of the things that we need today god Uh, again speak to us lord through the bread through the cup today pray in jesus name amen